last class you guys said chapter six is not available. It should be now. I don't think I actually had it open and saved. Uh, any questions over chapter four, chapter six? Those are the few chapters that will be on our exam on Thursday. Hopefully I get a chance to get the exam made uh, over the weekend. And that way we can, I can kind of give you some details about it on Tuesday. Um, again, any questions? So far. Okay, so this is where we pick up today then. So, uh, while yes, the integumentary system is uh, certainly not the most exciting system in the world, uh, the next three really uh, typically are a little bit more exciting and hopefully a little bit more fun and enjoyable as far as going through. Because now we actually start to talk about three of the most common systems, the skeletal system, the muscular system, and the nervous system. And also, a couple of those, particularly the muscular and nervous are, uh, some of the most detailed systems as far as uh, physiology, um, but they can also be, at the same time, some of the most understandable. And while some people enjoy physiology and some people don't, uh, when it comes to understanding and going through the physiology of at least the muscular and the nervous system, uh, it can be somewhat entertaining and somewhat enjoyable to go through. As opposed to what I would consider renal physiology, I don't find a lot of enjoyment out of that. Uh, but anyway, so today we actually start the skeletal system. So we actually start looking at some of the bones and the cartilage and ligaments and all that stuff that we actually begin to go through. Uh, as I get into uh, chapter eight, um, I haven't actually got into looking at the uh, presentation on that one quite yet, uh, but when I do get into that, uh, there are certain things that I particularly want to make sure that we cover. Um, I'm just not sure if they're in there. So if they're not in there when I start going through chapter eight, I may come back um, and edit uh, a little bit of chapter seven here, uh, so that it kind of has some of the components that I want to make sure that we do cover. So when we look at the skeletal system, we have to obviously look at the components of it and what make up the skeletal system. The first thing, obviously, are the bones. Skeleton. When people think of the skeletal system, the first thing they think of is the bones. But we also have some other components to it. We also have cartilage ligaments, and then we do have some other connective tissues, okay? And so when we look at the bones, obviously the bone is the most uh, common or the primary organ of the skeletal system. And what it does, it kind of gives us that rigid framework for the body, okay? It gives us the frame. You can kind of see the outline of the human body just based on the skeleton from obviously the legs and the arms, uh, but it also serves a lot of other functions, okay? And so, to be quite honest, I not, don't remember right off the top of my head if we go through the functions here a little bit later. But what are some of the other functions of what bone would be? What do we think some of the functions would be? Obviously, it provides us a framework, but what else would it do? Or what else can it do? 
Right. Goes through red blood cell production. What's the connection for muscles? Right. We're providing levers for muscle connections so that we actually have the ability uh, to move. What else? Protection. protection. We need protection. Right. Rib cage protects your lungs and your heart. Skull protects your brain. Spinal cord, spinal column, uh, your vertebra or your vertebrae uh, protect your spinal cord. So those are some of the major functions of what your spine or what your bones, I guess I should say, what your bones and skeleton actually do. And so when we look at bone tissue then, we have a couple different types. We have compact bone, which is what people typically think of when they think of bone. It's that dense, cortical, hard stuff that everybody kind of thinks of when they think of bone tissue. And compact bone basically makes up about 80% of our bone mass. So, I mean, it's relatively heavy, it's relatively strong and sturdy. But we also have this other type, and it's called spongy bone. We also call it cancellous or trabecular bone. And what we're going to find is that it's located internal to what our compact bone is. So we're going to see this in a lot of like what we consider flat bones, uh, the heads of some of our long bones, which we'll talk about. But you'll have this kind of compact bone outside, but then you'll have this kind of spongy bone inside. Okay. And so when we look at our spongy bone, it's essentially going to appear as if it's porous. Okay. Think of a sponge. I mean, that's kind of where we get the name spongy bone. Everybody knows what a sponge looks like, right? Whether it's a sea sponge or whether it's a cleaning sponge, how it's got that kind of look to it. That's really what spongy bone looks like, except just put that sandwich between two layers of compact bone. And so it makes up about the other 20% of bone mass. We also have cartilage. And cartilage is kind of a semi-rigid uh, connective tissue. Uh, it does have a lot of strength to it, okay? So it is very tough, and, but it's also more flexible than bone, okay? So just as bone tissue is pretty strong and tough, so is cartilage. Again, we just have a lot more flexibility with cartilage than what we do uh, with bone. We have two different types of cartilage. We have hyaline cartilage uh, and fibro cartilage, okay? So when we look at hyaline cartilage, hyaline cartilage is the most common type of cartilage in the body, okay? It's gonna to attach the ribs to the sternum. It's gonna give us the articular cartilage that covers the ends of a lot of our, our bones that create joints for movement. Uh, it's gonna be located within our growth plates, what we, find, what we call the epiphyseal plate. And it also provides us a model for bone formation as we're younger and as we uh, begin development, okay? Our, a lot of our bone actually starts out as cartilage and then we go what we consider the ossification process. Go through what we consider the ossification process. Our other type of cartilage is fibrocartilage. Fibrocartilage is, is a very tough type of cartilage that typically is found in weight-bearing cartilages. Okay? And it withstands compression. So you're looking at things like the knee meniscus, okay? where a lot of your weight comes down onto your knee. So it's basically ingrained into your tibia, provides a little bit of a platform for your uh, femur to actually kind of sit, uh, sit in, okay? We also find it in your discs of your spine, okay? So these are, again, pads of fibrocartilage 
that essentially, again, allow the vertebrae to stack themselves on top of each other. And then the pubic symphysis, which if you're not familiar with that, it's where your two pelvic bones come together and they meet in the front. And then as they meet, there's a pad of cartilage right there called your pubic symphysis, okay? We also have ligaments, which basically are uh, pieces of tissue that basically connect bone to bone. And then tendons, and tendons connect muscle to bone, okay? Which I'm sure you've probably heard that before. So if we take a look at some of the distributions of cartilage in the adult and into the juvenile, uh, juvenile skeleton, again, you can kind of see where some of these are. Here's your pubic symphysis that we were talking about. Again, your two pelvic, uh, your two pelvic bones as they come together right in the middle there. Okay? And again, forms your pubic symphysis. You can see some of these other locations. You have articular cartilages. Here you have the fibrocartilage of your knee meniscus. Um, again, fibrocartilage in your uh, spine where your uh, disc spaces are. Uh, you can see in blue here all these articular cartilage locations. You can see in the juvenile spine, again, we have the articular cartilage on the end, but we also have the articular, or we also have the uh, cartilage of the epiphyseal plate for growth. Okay? And that is a type of hyaline cartilage. So here we get into some of our functions, which again, we've kind of touched on already. Again, we look at some of the basic functions. We talked about support and protection. Uh, we talked about being levers for movement where muscles can attach, and as muscles contract, they cause movement or they pull on that muscle tissue. We talked about red cell, uh, or red blood cell formation, which is called hematopoiesis. And this is typically going to occur in the red bone marrow uh, connective tissue, which again, we're going to typically find uh, in just a few places, uh, particularly some of our flat bones and spongy bones, uh, but also we find that a lot of it in the heads of some of our long bones. So particularly, uh, you're looking at the head of the femur uh, and the head of the humerus are really good locations where we actually are able to find a lot of good red marrow, okay? One of the other functions that we didn't hit uh, with storage of minerals. So obviously calcium is a big one. Vitamin D is required for bone growth and bone density. It also provides us with energy reserves. Not only do we have our red marrow cavities, we also have yellow <coughs> marrow cavities, which typically are in the bone shafts. And so we find some of our fat tissue, triglycerides, are found in the shafts of our bone and in our yellow marrow cavities. Okay. So again, those are just a handful of the functions uh, or some of the major functions of what bones and what the skeleton uh, serves us for. When we start looking at bone then, we start looking at the classifications. And we have four different classifications. So we look at the classifications. The first classification is a long bone. It's going to be greater in length than it is width. So again, think of the long bones. Think of your uh, bones of your extremities, okay? At least the major bones of your extremities. Uh, think of your humerus, uh, your radius, your ulna, your femur, your tibia, your fibula. Those are all long bones, okay? Again, they have a greater length than what they do width. We also look at short bones, and this is where the length nearly is equal to the width. So these are typically gonna be what we find in your carpals and tarsals which are 
medical terms for what? Hands and feet. Right, basically the bones in your hands and your feet, okay? Particularly the wrists and your ankle muscles. Um, your shora, the next one is a flat bone. And these, this is pretty straightforward. They're flat, thin surfaces. A lot of times you're gonna actually see that they are curved, okay? So again, the cranial bones, your uh, occiput, your frontal bone, your parietal bone, uh, your temporal bone, those are all flat bones, okay? They do have a little bit of a curve to them, but mostly those are flat surfaces. Uh, your ribs, uh, to a certain degree, actually fall into this category in some textbooks, um, depending on where you look at them. Uh, some texts will actually classify it as a long bone as well, but again, that's kind of a either or, depending on which book you look at. Uh, irregular bones. These basically don't fall into any of the first three categories. Uh, they're elaborate, sometimes they're complex. So things like your vertebrae, those are very irregular. There's no rhyme or reason to their shape. Well, there is a rhyme or reason to their shape, but as far as classification, they don't really fall into any particular category. Uh, how far are you guys in the lab right now? So you actually have covered bone tissue already? Just some of you are having it, some of you just started it? Okay. So if you are to that point and you've gone through it already, uh, have you had to study the ethmoid bone yet? Yes, so if you've looked at the ethmoid bone, that's probably one of the most irregular bones in the human body uh, because it basically just looks like um, a mountain range with peaks and valleys and all over the place. So that kind of gives you an idea of what some of the irregular bones uh, actually look like. So this graphic obviously just shows some of the locations of each of those classifications. Again, you can kind of look here, uh, a flat bone of the cranium, the frontal bone. Uh, long bone is obviously going to be your femur. Irregular bone is your vertebrae, and then obviously again the short bones. Uh, again, you can see in your uh, feet and ankles, and then also you find those in your wrists as well. So, knowing that we have a classification, we now actually start to look at the regions of the bone, okay? And this is where we start to understand what the bone is and how it really gains some of its function, if you will. So, one of the first regions of a long bone is called the diaphysis, okay? And if you take a long bone, okay, and you look at what we consider the diaphysis, it's usually the shaft of the bone. So essentially, it's the long center part of the bone. It's elongated, usually kind of a cylindrical shape. Okay? So again, take out the femur bone and take out the long portion of it. Again, it relatively looks like a cylinder. Okay? By being long, the diaphysis basically provides us with leverage and basically gives us a lot of area for weight support. Okay? When we look at the diaphysis, Essentially, you're going to look at it, and it's going to have this kind of compact bone all the way along the side of it, okay? And then once you get to the inside is where we're going to find some of our spongy bone, if, if anything's present. So the diaphysis is compact bone with thin spicules of spongy bone extending inward, okay? So again, not a whole lot of spongy bone uh, in the diaphysis. Most of it's actually going to be more on the ends of the bone, okay? The medullary cavity 
is, is essentially the middle part of the diaphysis, okay? Where essentially it's hollow. So we have this hollow cylindrical space that we find within the diaphysis, within the shaft of the <coughs> This is where we contain some of the red marrow for children, okay? But once we become adults, basically it's the cavity for yellow marrow. Uh, and again, yellow marrow is where we're essentially going to find a lot of our fat, triglycerides, energy storage, okay? Whereas in red marrow, uh, it's producing a lot of red blood cells. Our next area then is the epiphysis, okay? And so if the diaphysis is the shaft of the bone, the epiphysis basically we look at to be the ends of the bone, okay? And so the epiphysis is the knobby region at the end of each long bone. We have a proximal epiphysis, which, what does proximal mean again? Closer to, what's distal? Further away. So we have the proximal epiphysis, which is the end of the bone that's going to be closest to the trunk. And then we have a distal epiphysis, which is the end that's going to be farthest from the trunk. Okay? And because of this, not necessarily because of it, but when we look at the epiphysis, it's composed of a thin layer of compact bone on the outer surface. And then on the inner surface, it's got a spongy bone interior. Okay? So whereas the diaphysis is mostly compact bone outside with a hollow inside, the epiphysis is mostly a compact bone surface with a spongy bone interior, okay? And then the last component, or one of the last components we have, is the articular cartilage. And the articular cartilage is that cartilage that actually covers the joint surface. It is a hyaline cartilage, okay? One thing that we're gonna find when we cover bone development is that a lot of our body when we're born is a hyaline cartilage template, okay? So we start as cartilage. As our bones begin to ossify and that tissue becomes hardened, we are left essentially with two regions or in a case of a long bone, four regions. Two epiphyseal ends uh, with a growth plate and then the two articular cartilage surfaces, okay? And so articular cartilage is the remnant of the articular cartilage template that's left on the edge of the bone surface, okay? And its purpose is to reduce friction so that you're not basically rubbing bone on bone so that you actually have a smooth surface, but it's also lubricated with synovial fluid in a lot of cases. And so by having a synovial fluid joint with articular surfaces, it allows us to kind of smoothly move over top of each other. It also then absorbs shock in a lot of our movable joints, okay? We also have what we consider, a, or what we call a metaphysis, okay? And this is the region of mature bone between the diaphysis and the epiphysis, okay? This basically replaces the growth plate or the epiphyseal plate as we mature and get older, okay? And so the epiphyseal plate, again, is located within the metaphysis, okay? This is where we have our growth for our bone tissue. It is also called the growth plate, okay? And so again, 
It's just a thin layer of hyaline cartilage that goes that in that layer basically is continuously going through cell division, creating more and more cartilage cells. And as they move, they basically are pushing older cells to the edges so that they actually become or go through the ossification process. And that's how you end up growing uh, in length. Again, provides for lengthwise, lengthwise bone growth. And in adults, the epiphyseal line is the true remnant of what we have as far as the epiphyseal plate, okay? But again, all of that is located within that metaphysis, the region where the diaphysis and the epiphysis meet. So let's go ahead, let me see if I can zoom this in a little bit so that we can see a little bit better. How many people can read it? 
What do they call that little space right there, or that little mark right there? Epiphyseal line. Epiphyseal line, yeah. okay? So, what does that mean? Does that mean we are looking at a adult bone or a child bone? Adult bone, okay? How do you know? Because what? Right, the cartilage isn't there. It doesn't have a growth plate, okay? So this is the epiphyseal line. It's the remnant of the growth plate. If this was a growth plate and a child bone, this would actually have cartilage here. And we would call this the epiphyseal line, okay? And so this is kind of the epiphyseal plate, excuse me, the growth plate in there, okay? And that's where the cartilage is going through its cell division in order to actually make that bone a little bit longer, okay? But in this case, this is the remnant, so it's the epiphyseal line, so this is a, an adult bone. Um, I don't think I missed anything on this bone for now. All the rest of the stuff we'll talk about here shortly. So any questions on the long bone so far? So if we go down, um, you can see the rest of it. Again, it's basically the same thing, just on the distal aspect. Here's our distal epiphysis with the metaphysis there as well. And again, leftover cartilage. And yes, that is the humerus bone. Questions on that? So this was gross anatomy of a long bone, okay? Now we kind of take a little step back and look at the gross anatomy of just bones in general, okay? And so if we look at the bones, we're gonna have different linings and different coverings, different ways to kind of protect it and allow things to connect to it and all that stuff. So we have to look at the first one, uh, which is the periosteum. And the periosteum is the tough sheet that covers the outer surface of bone. So we have this kind of fibrous connective tissue layer that basically covers the surface of our bones, okay? Uh, the periosteum protects the bone from surrounding structures. It also anchors blood vessels and nerves to the bone surface. And it's also the attachment site for ligaments and tendons, okay? So that's the outer fibrous layer. We also have kind of an inner cellular layer where we have a lot of our bone cells. Right? And these cells are going to include osteoprogenitor cells, osteoblasts, and osteoclasts. Okay? Alright. So we'll talk about uh, what each of those are here in just a few minutes. But when we look at attaching it then, uh, the periosteum itself is actually attached to the bone by a bunch of little collagen fibers. And collagen fibers are very small, but they're very, very tough fibers. They have a lot of strength, okay? And we call these perforating fibers, or Sharpies fibers, okay? And again, they basically connect this periosteum to underlying bone layers, okay? Or to the underlying bone layer. And so if we kind of look at the bone, look at the surface of the bone, you can see where we have this you know, fibrous layer on the outside, this is the outer layer. Just below that, we have our kind of cellular layer, the second layer, the inner layer. And then we have all these little collagen fibers, okay? Perforating fibers, also known again as Sharpie's fibers. 
And they basically are connecting this underlying layer or the periosteum in general to the actual bone layer or to the compact bone, right? And so again, that is our periosteum. We also then have the endosteum, okay? And so the endosteum, and usually when you see that, typically means inside or inner. The endosteum covers all internal surfaces of the bone within the medullary cavity, okay? And it's a very incomplete layer of a bunch of cells, including osteoprogenitor cells, osteoblasts, and osteoplasts, okay? So again, if we take a look at that inside layer, here's our medullary cavity. You can see kind of this space um, where we have the spongy bone kind of under surface uh, from that long bone. But then we get deeper into that medullary cavity. Here is our endosteum. And again, it's just kind of this layer upon layer of different cell types within the bone tissue, within uh, the surface of that medullary cavity. I think we go back two slides. The endosteum is actually here. You can kind of see. See if I can make this a little bit bigger as well. So if we look at it from a larger scale, again, we can pull this layer back. You can see again all the perforating fibers and Sharpie's fibers uh, here. But then if we go in the actual medullary cavity region, just below that compact bone layer, and just below that spongy bone layer, there's gonna be where that endosteum is, okay? So it's kind of the inner lining of the bone, so basically surrounding the medullary cavity. So, now if we look at some of the anatomy of other bone classes, we have a few different characteristics regarding those. So if we look at short, uh, flat, and irregular bones, they're going to have a little bit of a different structure compared to long bones. Okay? When we look at these bones, their external surface is composed mostly of compact bone, which we kind of know. But the inside is almost all spongy bone. Whereas in the long bone, we have the medullary cavity that's a little bit hollowed out. In these bones, in these three types of bones, the interior is basically all spongy bone, okay? And we have a specific name called diploe that we call the spongy bone in flat bones, okay? Specifically, the flat bones of the skull, okay? And that's, again, is called diploe. When we look at these three types, there is no medullary cavity, okay? There is no hollowed out region for a lot of our yellow marrow to fit into, okay? So just a few different characteristics for some of those. So again, if you take a look at it and kind of look at a little bit of a graphic here, here we've taken out a small little cutout of our skull. Again, you still have the periosteum, so you still have that compact bone layer. Just below that then, you now have the compact bone, so the periosteum attaches itself to compact bone. But then just below that then, instead of having a medullary cavity, here we have all this spongy bone, okay? So spongy bone occurs or is located in these bones. And again, 
When we see this type of bone, the spongy bone, in our flat bones, we call it diploid. So again, it's kind of got its own uh, name as far as what it is. So we also have to look then at how we supply our bone tissue with a nervous innervation and with a blood supply. Wow. Has anybody ever heard the term innervation? As we go through this class, you'll hear me say that word uh, quite a bit. So I guess we should probably know what it means. Innervation basically is nerves controlling or going to a particular tissue. So when we say nervous innervation uh, of bone tissue, it basically means nerves going to and from bone tissue and controlling what we feel, how it acts, what it does. Right. Same thing if we have nervous innervation to the cardiac muscle. The nerves control how fast it beats, how hard it beats, whether it beats, okay? That is nervous innervation. If you hear me say that term, that's kind of what we're, what we're looking at, okay? So, we have blood supply and innervation of bone. Bone tissue is highly vascularized, especially in the regions of the spongy bone. Maybe not quite as much in compact bone, although we're going to see that compact bone has its own blood supply as well, okay? Uh, and this blood supply basically allows us to provide nutrients to bone so that it maintains its strength, it maintains its minerals and all that stuff. We have certain things called nutrient foramen, which are basically small openings uh, in a hole in the bone tissue itself. And this is basically where arteries are able to enter and veins are able to exit, okay? So it allows us to take blood to the bone and also then allow blood to leave the bone. Uh, going through those foramen are the nerves and they accompany our blood vessels as it actually penetrates into the bone tissue. Again, the nerves here then innervate the bone, the periosteum, the endosteum, and the marrow cavity, okay? So it's why you can feel if you have an irritation of the bone surface. Uh, it's why you can feel that, because the periosteum has a nervous innervation, okay? Now again, most of these are going to be sensory nerves, <coughs> which we would consider afferent, okay? I'm pretty sure we went over those terms, right? Afferent and efferent. Afferent does what? To where? Afferent goes from body to brain. Efferent does what? Brain to body. Tells our effectors what to do. Does bone actually have much of a response to anything? Not really, I mean, other than actually creating red blood cells doesn't really do anything. It, it can do all its jobs, all its functions, really without much of a nervous supply or an efferent nervous supply. But it does need to be able to feel things. It needs to feel when it's broken. It needs to feel when there's problems. And so we have a lot of sensory information going from the bone tissue up to the brain. Okay, So we have a very strong afferent supply. Uh, we have bone marrow, which I think we know already. This is some soft connective tissue of bone. We have both red and yellow. The red marrow is what we consider myeloid tissue. Okay? This is homo uh, hematopoietic tissue, which is basically blood cell forming tissue. 
Okay? We also have reticular connective tissue, immature blood cells, and fat that we can find in there. When we look at red marrow, the locations are going to be a little bit different in children compared to adults. In children, it's located in the spongy bone and the medullary cavities of long bones. Okay? Uh, we're also going to find it in several other locations, but when we look at adults, uh, it's really more localized, if you will. I know the list looks like it's a lot longer, uh, but it's really not. Okay? I mean, the list of names, I guess, technically is longer, but uh, as far as locations, we find it in the skull, the vertebrae, the ribs, the sternum, the coccyx, uh, the proximal epiphysis of the humerus, and the femur. We're a little bit more localized in where we find a lot of our red marrow, whereas here, we pretty much find it in the spongy bone and medullary cavities of basically all of our long bones. So you kind of put that into perspective, a lot more locations in children uh, than what we have uh, in adults. Yellow marrow, um, on the other hand, is a product of red marrow degeneration as children mature, right? So again, we look here, located in the spongy bone and the medullary cavity of long bones. Now here, as we get into adults, the red, or the red marrow basically starts to degenerate specifically in the medullary cavity, and now becomes more of a yellow marrow. It becomes a fatty substance. Eventually, at certain times, it can convert back to red marrow if it needs to, uh, usually during severe times of anemia, or when we have conditions with reduced erythrocytes or reduced red blood cells, okay? And so it's going to help facilitate the production of additional erythrocytes if needed, okay? Very rarely does that happen. So again, you can kind of take a look here. Uh, really not a lot to actually see other than what we're kind of looking at from a red marrow perspective. Uh, this is a cross section basically of the head of the femur, okay? So we basically just kind of cut it open and take a look at it. You can see the edge of the bone here, and you can see going all the way down into that medullary cavity where we have a lot of that red marrow. I guess I shouldn't say medullary cavity, I should say the epiphysis there. Uh, where we actually go into the head of the femur and you can see a lot of that red marrow. So, knowing about red marrow, I'm sure we've all heard of a bone marrow transplant, and that's where a little bit of our clinical view kind of comes into play here, okay? so. Typically, red marrow transplants occur in what patients? What type of patients? Cancer patients, okay? And so essentially what happens is the bone marrow basically is destroyed by radiation and chemo. And so at this point, we now have abnormally functioning marrow. And so what we end up doing then is we take different cells from a recipient, somebody that has a good blood match and tight match, all that stuff, and so now we actually inject the good cells into the bloodstream of that recipient with the intent that those cells actually migrate to normal locations uh, for red marrow. Right? Again, we talked about basically a little bit about the match, but you have to be a match in blood type and a lot of other components uh, between the donor and the recipient so that the immune system doesn't see this as abnormal cells or non-matching cells and actually come in and start to attack itself, okay? 
So again, we got to have a match. So any questions on uh, the overall anatomy of bone? That's kind of the macroscopic anatomy, if you will. Right? Just kind of looking at bone tissue mostly on the surface, right? and then a basic cut open of it. Our next anatomical view of bone, then, is to actually look at it from a microscopic point of view. And so now we start looking at some of the cells and then some of the connective tissue of bone. Okay? So bone connective tissue is an osseous tissue. Uh, it's obviously the primary component of bone. Uh, bone is composed of cells as well as an extracellular matrix that basically gives us kind of a, uh, a tough type of tissue, if you will. When we look at the cells of bone, there are actually four different types of bone, or four different types of bone cells that we see. Osteoprogenitor cells, osteoblasts, osteocytes, and osteoclasts, okay? Four different types. So our first one, we look at osteoprogenitor cells. These are basically stem cells uh, of bone, okay? And they're derived from mesenchyme developmental tissue. As we go through cell division, it yields another stem cell and what we consider another committed cell. Our mature osteoprogenitor cells basically become osteoblasts, okay? And these are gonna be found located in the periosteum and the endosteum, okay? So most of our osteoprogenitor cells become, again, osteoblasts. So what are osteoblasts then? Again, they form from osteoprogenitor stem cells and what they do is they synthesize and secrete what we call osteoid. Okay? And osteoid is kind of this uh, organic matrix uh, of bone. Okay? And what it does is it lays down this kind of semi-solid organic matrix. That matrix eventually calcifies and becomes a hard matrix. Okay? So our osteoblasts basically are bone forming cells. As our osteoblast then, as they continue to lay down matrix, some of that matrix may actually surround them, and once they're surrounded, they begin to mature, and they get trapped. As they do that, they actually become mature bone cells, and they are called osteocytes. Okay? And so osteocytes are mature bone cells that are derived from osteoblasts. Okay? And so our, osteo, uh, our osteocytes then detect stress on bone and they can actually begin to help trigger new bone formation, okay? Which we'll talk about this one as we talk about Wolf's Law a little bit later. Our last cell is an osteoclast, okay? So while osteoblasts are bone forming cells, osteoclasts are essentially bone destroying cells, okay? These are large, multinuclear, phagocytic cells that basically come in and essentially break down or degenerate bone. They're gonna be derived from fused bone marrow cells. Uh, they have ruffled borders uh, that increases the surface area. It gets exposed to the bone and they're located within or adjacent to a depression or a pit on the bone surface, which is called the resorption lacuna, okay? And again, this is involved in bone resorption. Now, what would be a couple reasons for bone resorption? Anybody know why you would break down bone? 
Why do you think you might break down bone? As far as a normal process for the human body. What's that? Right. So if your bloodstream is low on calcium, where do you store most of our calcium at? With your bone. So if we need to increase bone calcium or uh, blood calcium levels, we basically go in and get it from our bone tissue. So it breaks down bone, resorbs it, pulls it back into the body, and so that allows us to increase uh, our calcium levels. We also see it uh, in what other normal process? Um, that's a little bit better answer. Your first answer is right too though. So I'm gonna use both of them. So one, uh, you didn't say it this way, but I'm going to say it this way, is bone remodeling. As you get older and stresses get put on the bone, uh, your body puts down new bone, but it also breaks down old bone. In a sense, trying to remodel the bone based on new stresses. That could be weight gain. It could be uh, an injury where you're starting to limp and you're putting more pressure on certain areas. You can have what we consider bone remodeling. The other one was, what about fractures or injuries? We have to go in, we clean up areas. We use white blood cells for some of that, uh, but we also use uh, some of our osteoclasts on the surface of bone to kind of clean it up. And so that we also go through that healing process there. So those are some areas where osteoclasts would have an increase in their, uh, in their activity, okay? Here we have the cell types uh, in bone. You can kind of see osteoprogenitor cells develop into osteoblasts, which again, if they get caught and mature, they become osteocytes. And then here we have our osteoclasts again, we kind of have this wide base that gives us more surface area. And again, it just allows us to kind of dig in and basically break down bone tissue as we need to. Okay. So if we look at that osteoid and we look at that bone matrix, we have both organic and inorganic components. Okay. Organic components are basically what? What do we know about organic substances? Shorten that down to at least one element. And what is that one element? Right, organic substances all contain carbon. Yes, they're going to contain a mixture of different things, but the one common thing they have is they all contain carbon. Okay? Inorganic substances are going to be a lot of the other things. So we're going to see like vitamins and minerals and uh, stuff that actually kind of give us a hard uh, or a hardened substance. Okay? So if we look at some of the organic components, we have osteoid, which is produced by our osteoblast. What it contains, it contains collagen, which we know collagen, again, is a very tough fiber substance. Uh, it also has a semi-solid ground substance of proteoglycans and glycoproteins, okay? This is where some of the organic substances come in. Obviously, proteoglycans are protein-type sugars, as well as glycoproteins, so very similar uh, in that regard. What this is, is it gives the bone a very strong protection risk. Great. Gives our bone a lot of toughness, okay? So it gives us a tensile strength. And it does this, or 
because of this, I should say, it actually resists stretching. Okay? Now, while it resists stretching and there's not much give to bone tissue, there is a little bit of flexibility in live bone tissue. Okay? Obviously, when you die, if you are looking at a real bone of something that used to be alive, obviously that bone's pretty tough. And you try to bend it, and if it's thin enough, it just snaps, right? It doesn't have a lot of give outside the body, but when it's live, it does have a little bit of flexibility. You can push on it, and it does have a little bit of bend to it, okay? And it's because of this substance in live tissue, okay? This osteoid uh, and some of these other uh, organic substances. <coughs> if we look at the inorganic components, this is where we get into a lot of the minerals and the, uh, well, yeah, the mineral component of it. So we basically have a lot of salts. We have calcium phosphate in particular, which is Ca3PO42. Um, this all, all these things interact with calcium hydroxide, uh, and it forms crystals of hydroxyapatite, which is Ca10PO46OH2. Okay, you don't need to know those formulas, but just kind of understand this. Then we have other substances that get incorporated into crystals, okay? This is going to include calcium carbonate, sodium, magnesium, sulfate, and fluoride, okay? So again, we have a lot of other substances that are at least a part of uh, our bodies. The crystals that end up developing around our collagen fibers, uh, which again, kind of starts to give us the toughness of the bone and the hardened matrix uh, begins to account for the rigidity of bones, okay? So, that's kind of the organic and the inorganic part of bone tissue, okay? And so it kind of gives you an idea not only of the structure, but also what gives the bone its strength, but also uh, some, I guess, of the flexibility and the movability of bone tissue itself. If we continue on with some of the microscopic anatomy, uh, we actually get to bone formation, okay? And so the first thing that we begin with is the secretion of the osteoid, this matrix that some of our bone cells, particularly the osteoblast, begin to secrete, okay? And it's because of this, because of some of this osteoid, that we begin to have calcification. And in order to have calcification, we basically deposit a lot of these hydroxyapatite crystals, okay? And so these... Uh, Hydroxyapatite crystals basically are made of, obviously, again, calcium and phosphate ions. And so what they do is they precipitate out, and you begin to form these crystals of bone tissue. Okay? Now, again, remember, this is at the very microscopic level. This entire process really involves a couple things. It involves vitamin D, which, again, we've talked about this kind of on a side note before, enhances calcium absorption. Okay? particularly in this case from the GI tract. And vitamin C is required for collagen formation, okay? And then lastly, we need calcium and phosphate for the actual calcification and hardening of bone tissue itself, okay? One thing that sh we should also have up here though is magnesium as well, because again, magnesium is also partially responsible for enhancing calcium absorption in the body. So if we look at bone resorption then, uh, again, what cells do this? Osteoclasts. Osteo, which ones? 
class. Class, right? Osteoclasts are the cells that cause us to go through bone resorption. So in this case, instead of bone formation, we're basically breaking it down. And so the bone matrix is destroyed by the substances released from our osteoclasts. We basically are using enzymes, particularly proteolytic enzymes from our lysosomes within those osteoclasts. Uh, this is chemi or chemically digest the organic matrix components by using those enzymes. Uh, the calcium in the phosphate is dissolved by hydrochloric acid. The free calcium then in the phosphate ions now enter the bloodstream. And so we'll notice this again, going back to when this occurs, when our blood calcium levels are low, okay? And so again, the takeaway from really looking at this is one, that osteoclasts are involved in bone resorption. And they do this by utilizing a lot of our proteolytic enzymes in the lysosomes, okay? So again, just like a lot of our white blood cells have some of these things for breaking things down, so do our uh, osteoclasts, okay? Now, if we start to look then at compact bone, we actually take a look at the structures or um, what we consider the major structure of compact bone, okay? And so when we look at compact bone, we look at kind of cross-section through a microscope, we're actually gonna see a lot of individual units, okay? And so we call these the structural units of compact bone. And these are called aversion systems, or what we would consider osteons, okay? And these osteons are very small cylindrical structures, okay? And they basically run the length of our compact bone. These are what we consider the basic functional and structural unit of mature compact bone, okay? Again, if we look at the diaphysis, these osteons are oriented parallel to that bone diaphysis, okay? So parallel to the shaft, so they run the length of the shaft. And when we look at them, kind of look down on them, they basically look, as a, look like a bullseye's target, okay? I'm gonna jump ahead a few slides here. This is kind of what it looks like. Now again, this is kind of a microscopic view of it, but we see this osteon here. This is one single osteon. But now you take that osteon and you place thousands of them around each other and basically do that all the way around the diaphysis. And now you're starting to give a good structure to bone tissue. So if we look at the osteon components, one of the major components is what we call the central canal. And this central canal basically runs right down the center of an osteon, okay? And it runs parallel to it. In this central canal then, is where we have blood vessels and nerves. And so they basically extend all the way up. We have what we call concentric of bone connective tissue. And if you take that central canal and you just make circles around it, those circles represent our concentric lamella. Uh, they're made of collagen fibers or contain a lot of collagen fibers. And these collagen fibers basically run 90 degrees from the previous and the next lamella. And what it does, it gives the bone strength and resilience. I'm gonna take another step forward. If you look at this, you can see these lines, okay? I know they're very relatively faint, but you can kind of see these circles 
going all the way around, those are concentric lamellae. They're basically just rings of bone that essentially would telescope, if we like try to pull the center out, they would telescope around this central canal, okay? And again, connected by collagen fibers. Our next one, or next component, is going to be the osteocytes. And we said, we already know these are the mature bone cells. But we find them in those spaces of concentric lamellae called lacunae. There's gonna be little spaces where we have uh, mature bone cells that basically are kind of scattered throughout the, the compact bone. And these help maintain our bone matrix. So it kind of keeps bone survivable uh, as we age. We also have what we call canaliculi. Canaliculi basically are very small canals. Okay? They interconnect the channels within bone tissue. Okay? And so what they do is they extend from each lacunae and they travel through the lamellae and connect the lacunae to the central canal. Okay, so basically, it's allowing our bodies to have all these connections, or allowing our bone to have all these connections from these little spaces with mature bone cells to the major channel of the central canal. Our canaliculi house the osteocyte projections that allow intercellular contact and it allows the exchange of nutrients, minerals, gases, and waste between blood vessels and osteocytes. Because within these canaliculi, we start to have these little um, blood vessel growths, if you will, a way of connecting the central canal to other parts of the bone matrix, okay? Again, just those two graphics or those microscopic uh, views you can kind of take a look at. We'll have more of a graphic, I believe, in the next slide that we'll kind of be able to take a look and uh, basically see uh, everything. Uh, so we also have perforating or Volkmann's canals. These are going to be canals that are directly perpendicular to the central canals. Okay, And so these actually connect the central canal with different osteons. Okay? We also have circumferential lamellae, which gives us external and internal components. So the external circumferential lamellae are rings of bone that run immediately internal to the periosteum. The internal circumferential lamellae are rings of bone that run internal to the endosteum. And both of them run the entire circumference of the bone. And then that leaves us with interstitial lamellae. The interstitial lamellae are the components of compact bone between osteons or partially <coughs> resorbed osteons, okay? So, well, let's take a look at this. <coughs> First off, take a look at where we're at. We're basically just looking at uh, a long bone here, and we're kind of looking at the edge of that bone, okay? So particularly, we are looking at the humerus, okay? So if we look at each of these structures then, again, we can kind of basically look at almost everything that we've really talked about so far. Uh, we have the fibrous layer. What is this out here called, this whole thing? Again, this is the edge of our humerus. So what is this? The periosteum. 
we have both the inner layer and the outer layer. The fibrous layer to the outside, the cellular layer to the inside. What are all these little squiggle lines in there represent? Perforating or Sharpie's fibers in there, okay? Now, we start to look at some of this other stuff, okay? If we look at the lamellae first, we have the external circumferential lamellae. And again, it is just below the surface of our periosteum. And it runs, again, circumferentially all the way around our long bone, okay? And so it's just below the surface. So it's concentric rings on the outer surface. We also have the inner, internal circumferential lamellae. And this is going to be on the inside, right along the medullary cavity, also going all the way around. Now you can see it's each individual osteon. Oh, sorry, let me take a step back. And then we have the interstitial lamellae. And the interstitial lamellae is all this stuff between the osteons. That it's not really concentric, it just kind of fills in all the gaps. These are individual uh, osteons, okay? And so you can see that we have these, again, concentric rings going all the way around. And you can see what happens when we telescope this out, okay? And so going straight down the central canal is our nerve, artery, and vein. And then we have this perforation, or these little canals, basically connect uh, the central canal of one to the central canal of another, okay? So any questions on that? Okay, that'll be a good place to stop. I kind of forgot that I had a quiz ready. I'm not sure. I think I'm going to try to give it anyway. Approximately the last slide that we touched on. I slid this over. Uh, I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, with the intent that I could make it bigger and slide the uh, bone up into the corner. So whether that makes it a little bit easier to see or not, I have no idea. So I'm trying to make some of these images a little bit bigger so that we can see them and uh, read them while they're on the screen. So a lot of these things we kind of touched on, and I know we kind of covered this slide relatively quickly, the last class, so we'll kind of go over it again. <clears throat> when we look at this, just in general, what is this? What are we looking at right here? What is that whole thing? There's a couple, I mean, there's obviously not one specific way <clears throat> to describe it. There's several ways we can identify what this is. So obviously there's multiple correct answers. But what are we looking at? The outer of a bone. What's that? The outer of a bone. Yeah, the, in this case we're looking at the outside part uh, of the bone itself, particularly what region? The diaphysis. The diaphysis? Yeah. We also are looking at the inside part of the bone, if you will, because we are actually going deep into what we visually see. So this is kind of both the inside and the outside at the same time. Again, depending on how you want to describe it. Uh, how else would you describe this? What are we looking at? A long bone. Yeah, this is a long bone. Again, you would say what part of a long bone? 
Uh, I guess in this case, I was actually thinking something a little bit more specific. I think we kind of said it already. What is it? Kind of looking at the diaphysis, the shaft of it. Um, now, if we got more specific, what part of the bone are we looking at? Uh, not a osteon. We're looking at several osteons. And several osteons make up what? Yeah, it makes up this compact bone collar around the outer surface of the shaft of the bone. Okay? And so within this, we have all these different parts. Again, you can see these individual circles. These individual circles represent the osteons, which are basically these column-like tubes of bone, in a sense. You can see that we have the central canal that runs deep to the or runs down through the center of the osteon. Uh, and as it does that, what does that central canal contain? Blood vessels. Say again? Blood vessels. Blood vessels and? Nerves. Nerves. We can kind of look at this outer surface here. What is that called? Of the bone there? Periosteum. And it also, again, obviously has two layers. What is that periosteum held together, held to the bone by? Perforating or? What's the other name for it? I don't know if it's in your book this way, but I know I've said this numerous times. Perforating or what fibers? Sharpies fibers. Sharpies fibers. Okay? So that's what the periosteum is held down by. If we look at our lamellae, which basically are uh, sections of bone, you could almost think of them as layers, if you will. We have the external circumferential lamellae, which basically runs the external surface of that compact bone. We have the internal circumferential lamellae, which basically runs the inner circle. Uh, of the shaft of the bone. And then we have the interstitial lamella, which kind of fills in all the spaces as you put circles together. Obviously, we're going to have little sections where it's not filled, so or where it doesn't have uh, circumferential lamella, so we kind of fill it in so that we have a good, solid uh, bone tissue, if you will. If we take a look, then, a little bit deeper to the osteon itself, now we get a chance to kind of see some of the additional components to it. So here we have our central canal. Here we have our concentric lamellae that basically surrounds it. And again, you can kind of see what happens as you telescope that osteon out a bit. Uh, we have these canaliculi, these little small little canals. We have our osteocyte that kind of gets trapped, uh, mature bone cell gets trapped in there. You will notice kind of these little lines. Uh, so when we look at concentric lamellae, 
The one thing that we need to kind of understand about those is that they're not firmly ground together, if you will. So what happens is these concentric lamellae have a little bit of movement to them, okay? And they have this little rotary movement to them, so a little bit of rotation. So when you think about how this works then, and you have a little bit of rotation to the osteon or to those lamellae, it's interesting because now, what do you think that does to the bone? What do you think it allows the bone to do? So a little bit of twisting in all these osteons. What's that do to the bone? Take a little twist and do that thousands of times. Um, not the direction I was going for. Well, yes, you would be correct. It does cause a little bit of friction. What does it actually allow the bone to do then? I don't know if this is actually easy to notice at all. This critical thing. If there's a little bit of movement in one osteon, and you get a little bit of movement in thousands of osteons, what does that do for the entire bone? Sounds like a great answer to me. It gives the bone some slight, and I mean very slight, flexibility to it. So it's not one of those things that just bends and snaps. It allows the bone to have or uh, go with, in a sense, just some very slight torsion force or rotational force. So that if you twist, the bone itself doesn't just completely snap with the first small bit of force. It has a little bit of a torsion that it can accept without just completely snapping off. And so that's kind of what uh, our osteons do because of uh, some of these concentric lamellae. So any questions that, on any of that? Again, that was all compact bone. Any questions on the osteon? Again, the osteon is that basic uh, structural component of compact bone. So it kind of gets to the heart of what bone tissue really is. Okay? So if we look at spongy bone then, we have a couple different things that we have to look at from a definition standpoint. The first thing is trabeculae. Okay? So trabeculae is an open lattice of narrow rods and plates of bone. Okay? And so what we have is when we look at spongy bone and we look at the trabeculae, we have bone marrow that actually comes in and fills in a lot of that space. So while the bone tissue itself is relatively hollow, uh, it does get filled in uh, as far as filling in the gaps. Uh, it's a meshwork of crisscrossing bars. Uh, what it kind of looks like to me uh, when you look at it is if you've ever been into a, uh, a cave uh, and you have all these bars and pieces of ground and everything, basically holding the cave together and a lot preventing it really from just collapsing in. If you take that and kind of take a big step back, that's kind of what trabeculae look like. They look like a great big, I thought I'd have a picture and I don't. Looks like a great big cave. 
or, in a sense, a big sponge. This is a really nice image of trabeculae. I don't think I'm supposed to be using this. This is a different copyright. <coughs> Keep this on the down low. Is that, is that cool terminology anymore? Or is that way outdated? You guys don't say down low anymore? Okay. <coughs> this is what trabeculae look like. And I know we talked about uh, diploe in the last class. Uh, and that diploe is basically the spongy bone of flat bones. And I think we had a, at least somewhat of an image last time. Really couldn't find it, but I know where this one is. And this is a really good image. Uh, and if you look at this, you can see the compact bone edge, the compact bone edge. And again, this is a part of the skull. And you can see this like sponge section, which again is really where we got the name. Spongy bone looks like uh, a sponge you use for cleaning. And this is what you, you have. And so if you take that up and you blow it up, get a little bit closer, you can see everything that's in here. And so this obviously is all bone tissue, uh, hardened tissue, if you will. But it's not solid like our compact bone is. It doesn't have osteons linked to osteon and then other bone to fill in the gaps. What fills in the gaps in here? Marrow. What is it? Bone marrow. Bone marrow fills in all these gaps. So it's a relatively soft inside, although it still has you know, hardened trabeculae. Alright, and so what we find then is trabeculae, the way trabeculae is created and you'll see this in long bones as well. Uh, but when we start looking at trabeculae, trabeculae is basically created and laid down based on the stress that that particular bone or that particular region encounters. And so the more stress it has, the more trabeculae it lays down. Okay? We also have parallel lamellae, which is basically bone matrix. Uh, we find osteocytes that uh, get stuck between the lamellae. And then our canaliculi radiate from our lacunae, okay? So again, we can kind of take a look at this uh, spongy bone again here. And this is what we're really kind of looking at. You can kind of take a cross section of <coughs> one of these uh, trabeculite pieces, if you will. Again, we don't necessarily have the osteon per se, but we still kind of have these lamellae as they almost look like the concentric lamellae of the osteon. 
uh, we just call those parallel lamella, okay? Because again, there's no, uh, it's very irregular as far as how it gets laid down. And then again, you can see the canaliculi, the spaces, again, just providing it uh, regions in the bone tissue for us to be able to move through, okay? So as we continue to look at some of the microscopic anatomy, again, we've talked about how uh, the hyaline cartilage, hyaline cartilage is uh, basically a little bit of our template, and we'll talk about bone development here in a little bit. But when we look at the structure of hyaline cartilage, it's basically a bunch of, a bunch of cells scattered throughout the matrix of protein fibers, okay? And so as we embed them, uh, they get stuck in this gel-like ground substance, okay? And so it includes a lot of proteoglycans, but not calcium, okay? So this isn't necessarily a hardened substance quite yet. Hyaline cartilage is very resilient and flexible. Uh, it does have a high uh, percentage of water, as pretty much all liquids in our body do. Uh, it's highly compressible and is a very good shock absorber, okay? Which is why we'll find a lot of areas throughout our bodies are created or still left with hyaline cartilage. Uh, to a certain degree, a little bit of a downside, it's avascular. What does avascular mean? Yeah, no blood vessels, no blood supply. Or I should say no direct blood supply. And it contains no nerves. So you can't feel cartilage, okay? And you don't have a blood supply to cartilage, or again, a direct blood supply. So if we look at some of the cells that are involved, we have chondroblasts that produce the cartilage matrix, okay? Whenever you see the term chondro, that typically refers to cartilage, okay? So you'll see chondroblasts, cells that produce a matrix for the cartilage. Chondrocytes, okay? These are basically chondroblasts that get encased within the matrix. Think of these also like we think of osteoblasts and osteocytes. Osteoblasts are bone what? What type of cell? Say again? Um, not necessarily filler. Oh yeah, builder. So we got bone forming, bone building cells, right? And so those are what osteoblasts are. Osteoblasts get stuck in bone matrix and mature and become osteocytes. Same thing here. Chondroblasts produce cartilage matrix. Chondroblasts that get stuck become essentially mature cells and are chondrocytes, okay? Again, they occupy these very small spaces that we have, uh, just like we have lacuna in bone tissue, and the chondrocytes basically help to maintain that matrix, okay? The perichondrium is an irregular connective tissue, okay? And so the perichondrium basically covers cartilage and helps to maintain the shape, okay, and give it structure and form. So how do we go through growth, okay? Cartilage is made, or Cartilage growth is essentially one of the major ways that our bodies grow, okay? And so the growth of cartilage actually occurs or begins during embryologic development, okay? So basically while you're growing in utero. If we look at the growth in the length of tissue, that becomes interstitial growth, or that is interstitial growth. And it's gonna occur within the internal regions of the cartilage. If we're actually growing wider, okay, that's called apositional growth. And that typically occurs on the cartilage's outside edge, okay? 
So a couple different types of growth. Interstitial growth makes it longer. A positional growth makes something wider, okay? And so here you can kind of see the growth of cartilage. These are the steps of, a or, uh, of interstitial growth. I know you can't really see this very well. Interstitial growth. Again, here we kind of have our perichondrium. Here we have the hyaline cartilage. So the perichondrium is kind of giving it structure and shape. Hyaline cartilage is actually starting to grow here. And so if we kind of look at, I guess maybe my first question is, you guys can see that significantly better, I hope, yes? Okay. So if we look at interstitial growth then, you can see essentially we're starting with a chondrocyte. Okay, and essentially this chondrocyte basically is starting to go through mitosis. And so we essentially go through the cell division process. Okay? And so now again we have uh, a chondrocyte here. We have two chondroblasts, again, essentially for cartilage and matrix development. Uh, they're produced by mitosis from one chondrocyte, and those two now occupy one lacunae. Uh, again, each cell produces new matrix, begins to separate from its neighbor. Uh, now we begin to be called a chondrocyte. And again, the cartilage should, at this point just continues to grow. We continue to divide, and so we continue to multiply those cells. Now, the big key then, obviously, is with interstitial growth. What are we growing? What are we making bigger? Length or width? Length. Length. So essentially what we're going to find, and we'll talk about these here in a little bit as well, we're going to interstitial growth is really taking place in a very specific location or a very specific part of the bone in order to essentially lengthen the bone tissue, okay? If we look at apositional growth, whoops, similar type of thing, okay? Here we have our perichondrium, okay? And so now we're looking at apositional growth as opposed to within the hyaline cartilage template itself in the matrix, where we had interstitial growth. So we look at apositional growth. Again, we're still going through uh, mitosis and we're going through cell division. This is just a little closer to the perichondrium and to the surface. Uh, we have these new undifferentiated stem cells uh, and committed cells that differentiate into chondroblasts that are formed. And then at this point, the chondroblasts again are still creating new matrix, but they're doing this at the periphery as opposed to within the bone tissue, okay? And then step three, as a result of the matrix formation, uh, the chondroblasts push apart and become chondrocytes. And the chondrocytes continue to produce more matrix at the periphery. The end result for all of this is that as we create this cartilage, what does it do then to actually create the bone? Because at this point, all we've done is created cartilage. So what's left to do after we create this cartilage and this matrix whether it's within the bone or whether it's on the surface of the bone. What's left? What do we have to do to that tissue? Otherwise, we just have cartilage bones, and we don't. So what's kind of the last step that's not really up here? Or what do you think that last step could or might be? 
first question is cartilage hard or soft? Soft. It needs to harden. What's that? Does it need to harden? It would need to harden. So are you answering the first question? Yes. Okay. So cartilage is hard or soft? Soft. Soft. And if we have soft bones, what do we need to do? Harden them. Harden it. So the last step in this process that's really not identified up here really is to go through the ossification process. Where essentially we calcify what's left. Okay? And that leads us into that step. We go into ossification, also known as osteogenesis. Okay? And this is the formation and development of bone connective tissue, which again does begin within the embryo. Okay? But it doesn't stop there. It continues basically from the time it starts through childhood and all the way to and through adolescence. Okay? And while we may not be going through ossification itself, as we get older and into uh, you know, our late stages of life, we still have bone changes that continue to take place. Okay? But if we look at ossification, by the eighth through the twelfth weeks of embryonic development, the skeleton begins forming. So I am lucky enough to be uh, going through this for the first time. Uh, and so I look at this and I guess my uh, future child now has uh, the beginning stages of a skeleton. So it's kind of interesting actually getting to go through this and construct it when I get to actually put it into perspective. And so we have the skeleton begin to form and it does this from intramembranous ossification or endochondral ossification. So two different phases, okay? Intramembranous or endochondral ossification. And we'll talk about that. So intramembranous ossification is bone growth within a membrane. Okay, we call this dermal ossification. What it does, it produces the flat bones of the skull, some of our facial bones, our mandible, and the central part of the clavicle. Okay? So what are some of the steps of intramembranous ossification? Okay? Well, step one, we have an ossification center that forms within the thickened regions of the mesenchyme. Mesenchyme is basically just a type of tissue, uh, particularly a uh, type of developmental tissue. Uh, some of these cells are going to become osteoprogenitor cells. Some of these cells are going to become osteoblasts. Okay? So some are going to basically become stem cells, and some of them are going to become bone-forming cells. Okay? And our bone-forming cells basically become or do their job and they secrete this osteol and it becomes that hardened matrix, okay? Because of this, the osteoid then undergoes calcification where that uh, ground matrix that's secreted basically becomes hardened. And so it goes through the calcification process. Calcium salts deposit onto the osteoid and crystallize and now the entrapped cells that are there become osteocytes, okay? So if you have an osteoblast secreting osteoid, the osteoid surrounds it, it calcifies. Now we have turned that particular cell into an osteocyte, so a little bit more of a mature bone cell. Okay? At this point, woven bone begins to surround the periosteum. Uh -huh. And so at first, the bone is immature and is poorly organized. And then we get into the woven bone, and this is the primary type of bone. 
Uh, the mesenchyme surrounds the woven bone and forms the periosteum. Okay? And then lastly, the lamellar bone, which is secondary bone, replaces woven bone. Compact and spongy bone form from trabeculae. And the typical structure of the flat cranial bone is what we are typically left with, with this type of ossification. Okay? We have the compact bone surface and that internal kind of spongy bone. Okay? Again, it's composed of two external layers of compact bone and a layer of spongy bone in between. Okay? And so that is intramembranous ossification. And you can kind of see the steps up here. Again, if we look at the flat bone of a skull and how it develops, again, we kind of have this ossification center uh, where we have our bone cells, particularly osteoblasts, that begin to secrete that osteoid. As that osteoid becomes calcified and hardened, it traps a couple of those osteoblasts that mature and become osteocytes. You can see at stage three then, we begin to actually develop a little bit more of a blood supply. And so now we start to form this kind of pattern of what we typically see with spongy bone, okay? And so we have the woven bone. And then our last phase is to convert that woven bone uh, into more lamellar bone, okay? And again, that basically gives us the two layers of compact tissue and that internal spongy layer then, okay? And so this is essentially what we're left with. Our other type of ossification is endochondral ossification. This is the most common type of ossification that we run into. Okay? It basically begins with a hyaline cartilage model. Okay? So essentially, your bones are this hyaline cartilage template that it starts with. This is how most of our skeleton is created. And you can kind of see including the bones of the upper and lower limbs, pelvic, pelvis, vertebrae, uh, and the ends of the clavicles. Uh, an example would be long bone development. Again, I think that's pretty straightforward. So if we look at the steps then in long bone development and endochondral ossification, we start with this fetal hyaline cartilage, okay? And so it develops, it kind of gives us that template. Our chondroblasts continue to secrete the cartilage matrix. And again, this occurs during the eighth to 12th week of development. So basically, you're in your first trimester. Okay, when all this is taking place. Uh, the second step is now that cartilage begins to calcify. Okay? And so essentially we're looking at where we have a periosteal bone collar that begins to form. So just think of the starting point. Think of a small little bar of hyaline cartilage. You know, a couple inches long. Okay? Really at the most. Uh, and think of it as just like a little, uh, a very narrow tube of cartilage. And around that center part of the tube now, as it begins to ossify, you basically have a piece of bone that surrounds the inside part of that, okay? And that is our bone collar, okay? So the chondrocytes in the cartilage model produce holes in the matrix. The matrix begins to calcify and the chondrocytes die. It produces a calcified cartilage shaft with large holes. And now we begin to supply that template with blood vessels. Okay. So now blood vessels begin to grow towards the cartilage. Okay. Remember, we did say the cartilage is avascular. So essentially we have an indirect blood supply to this. Okay. Our osteoblasts then develop 
and begin to secrete that osteoid or that ground substance. And when it does, it forms a layer of osteoid around the calcified cartilage shaft. And again, the periosteal bone collar begins to form. I jumped a few slides ahead. Here, I know that again, it's kind of hard to see and read, but this is our uh, cartilage template here. And you can see that we're kind of starting to form this bone collar right around the edge. And so you can kind of see in this graphic here where the bone kind of starts to surround the inside part of that cartilage template. Okay. Um, so then the third step is that we start to develop this primary ossification center. Okay. And the primary center is going to actually develop in the diaphysis. Okay. So it's developing in the shaft of the bone. The periosteal bud extends from the periosteum into the cartilage shaft. And this is essentially where we're growing our capillaries and our osteoblasts. Okay? The osteoid produces, or osteoids produce osteoid. That was obviously a typo. Osteoblasts produce osteoid on the calcified cartilage template. And again, this is providing us with that primary ossification center. And this is the first major center of bone formation. Okay? Most of it, again, is formed by the 12th week of development. And the bone development extends in both directions towards our epiphyses. Okay? So now we're beginning to grow towards the bone ends. The bone connective tissue displaces calcified degenerating cartilage. And we're continuing to grow that bone. Now, our primary ossification center again grew in, our, in the shaft or the diaphysis of the bone. Now we're looking at the ends of the bone. Now we've moved to our epiphyses, okay? And so now our secondary ossification centers have begun to develop, okay? And again, they're forming in the bone ends. Again, same type of thing. The hyaline cartilage calcifies and degenerates. Blood vessels and osteoprogenitor cells enter and our secondary ossification centers form uh, a situation where bone displaces cartilage. Uh, and again, this is kind of what happens when we get to birth, is that we don't have all of our secondary ossification centers at birth, okay? Some of them develop a little bit later. And what this does, it allows for a lot more growth. Obviously, you're not gonna stay the same size forever. So we end up developing some of these centers uh, a little bit of time after birth, okay? And then our osteoclasts begin to resorb some of our bone matrix, and this allows to us to create this hollow medullary cavity, okay? So we have a little bit of bone or osteoblast activity, or I should say, we have a lot of osteoblast activity, but in stage four, step four, we do start to increase some of our osteoclast activity in order to help create or develop that medullary cavity. Uh, step five then, bone replaces cartilage except the articular cartilage and the epiphyseal plates. So again, as we continue to grow and we get into some of our uh, adolescent ages, now all of a sudden we have what we typically think of when we think of a normal bone, okay? Understand that articular cartilage and our epiphyseal plates are remnants or what's left of that 
very basic highland cartilage template that we started with, okay? And so then as we get older, the epiphyseal plates begin to ossify, and that's where we develop our epiphyseal lines, okay? So lengthwise, bone growth continues into puberty. Growth continues until the epiphyseal plate is converted to the epiphyseal line, and once we have that, it indicates the bone has reached adult length, okay? And so if you ever have x-rays as a kid or a teenager, this is really what they're looking at, okay? Remember, what shows up on an x-ray? Bone. What doesn't show up on an x-ray? Um, specifically in this case, what type of tissue? Cartilage. Cartilage basically shows up as nothing, black, or worse, gray, okay? But mostly black. And so, when we start looking at different parts of the bone as you're an adolescent, this is one of the ways that we basically just look at and say, okay, well, you still are gonna grow a little bit more, or, hey, sorry, you've reached your maximum height, okay? Because we're looking at the epiphyseal plates and whether they're still open or whether they have closed, okay? And this closure basically occurs between the ages of 10 and 25, okay? Obviously, typically a little bit later, but for the most part, uh, right around that age. <clears throat> so if we look at some of the steps here, again, we kind of see where um, the first four really are the ones that develop uh, right up until infancy, okay? So we have our eight to 12 weeks, we have the hyaline cartilage template, you can see in step two where we're really developing that uh, bone collar. You can see at the center uh, where we're going to end up developing uh, that primary ossification center. And then you can also see, and let me zoom this in so we can see a little bit clearer. You can see where that <coughs> periosteal bud begins to develop as well. So here in step two in the fetal period, Again, we have this bone collar that begins to, to form with our cartilage in the center. And this is where that cartilage matrix begins to deteriorate, kind of right where that cursor is, okay? As it continues to grow around, we basically start to develop the diaphysis or the shaft of the bone. And this is where that periosteal bud is, where it basically pierces what's going to be the diaphysis and actually begins to give it a blood supply. This allows us to have that primary ossification center uh, in the shaft of the bone here, and allows it to grow, or calcify in a sense, lengthwise, okay? What is this going to end up being, where my hand, where that cursor is? What do you think that's going to end up being? The epiphyseal Say it again? The epiphyseal plate. And so this is where we're going to continue the growth of our bones, okay? We move over to uh, step four, where basically we're a newborn or a child, okay? And this is where our secondary ossification centers begin. And this is right through here, right at the ends, right at the epiphyses, okay? So we're looking at the bone ends. And again, we get more, uh, more blood supply to the ends. Um, again, you get more deteriorating bone or I should say more deteriorating uh, cartilage. 
You can see now in the center though, where we're getting a little bit of osteoclast activity. And this is where we're starting to develop that medullary cavity, okay? Again, secondary ossification at both ends of the bone. And this is what's going to end up developing or converting into uh, our epiphyseal plate, okay? So here we get to step five and six. Here's our epiphyseal plate, which is basically where all our cartilage cells continue to divide and go through mitosis. And as they shift and push those developing cells or dividing cells out and away from that, that layer of development or that layer of division, it basically forces the cells to move apart. And again, as it does that then, it's actually going to cause a little bit of calcification then at these points. And that starts to lengthen the bone itself, okay? You now have the developed or mostly developed medullary cavity. You have the periosteum, you have the compact bone ring or compact bone collar around the outer side. And then you can see the leftover, if I go back, <clears throat> here is that cartilage template. Here is still the cartilage template. Here is still the cartilage template at the epiphyses, where now we started to develop the secondary ossification centers. But now as this continues to go through ossification, here is what's left. And we are left with what at the ends of the bone? Articular cartilage. And what is the function of articular cartilage? Any guesses? So bones can attach? What's that? Bones can attach? Um, not necessarily where bones can attach because they're actually all a part of the same thing. They're all one unit. This is already a part of the bone itself. It's just a different type of tissue. Purpose of articular cartilage is what? What's that? Right. Basically, to reduce friction and allow smooth movement. It's going to be covered with synovial fluid, uh, but it allows nice smooth movement. Okay? You wear that down, what do you have? Bone on bone, which is called, or is a hallmark of arthritis. Arthritis. And then here we have our late teens to adults, okay? And this is what we typically see with, or what we expect to see with bone. And there is our epiphyseal line uh, that is no longer an epiphyseal plate uh, because it completely ossified. So any questions with bone growth from cartilage? Oh, thank you. And we still got plenty of time.
All right. So if we look at interstitial growth then, again, interstitial growth is what? Growth of what? Makes the bone longer. Right, interstitial growth makes the bone longer, okay? And so if we look at bone growth, we have five zones of the epiphyseal plate, okay? We have the zone of resting cartilage. I got it. We have the zone of resting cartilage, which is essentially the zone that's nearest to the epiphysis, okay? These are where we have small chondrocytes that are distributed throughout the matrix. It resembles mature hyaline cartilage. It secures the epiphysis to the epiphyseal plate, okay? So again, zone of resting cartilage. Then we have the proliferating uh, region or the proliferating zone. This is where chondrocytes are undergoing rapid mitotic division, okay? So basically, it's going through a lot of cell division at this point. It's gonna align into longitudinal columns of flat lacunae, and the columns are parallel to the diaphysis, okay? Our third phase is the hypertrophic phase, okay? Or hyper, hypertrophic region or zone, okay? And what does hypertrophic mean? Or another way to say that is what does hypertrophy mean? Nobody's ever heard that term, hypertrophy? Okay, what's atrophy? Yeah, so, well, they don't necessarily contract, but the second part is right. Essentially, they get smaller, right? So, what do you think hypertrophy then is? It's bigger, okay? And so, we have the same thing here. The chondrocytes stop cell division, they begin to go through hypertrophy, so now those cells are actually getting bigger, okay? And the walls of the lacunae become thin, okay? So again, the hypertrophic phase, our cartilage cells are enlarging and getting bigger. <coughs> our fourth zone then is the calcification zone, right? And you can probably guess what happens here and what do you think happens here? What happens in the calcification zone? Um, and what then happens? Make this way simpler. In the calcification zone, what happens? Calcification, right? And so we take those chondrocytes that are in two to three layers, and now we actually start to add the minerals that basically allow us to calcify that region, okay? And so now we destroy the uh, chondrocytes. So chondrocytes are basically broken down. And that leads us into our last one, and that's the zone of ossification, where now instead of just being calcified, we now actually are starting to convert that into real bone, right? And so the walls break down between the lacunae and the columns, 
The spaces are invaded by capillaries and osteoprogenitor cells, and the new bone matrix is deposited on the calcified cartilage matrix, okay? So again, those five phases, resting, proliferating, hypertrophic, calcification, and then lastly, the zone of ossification, okay? And so it does that basically in these five stages here. Essentially what we've done uh, in this case is we've taken a cross-section of our epiphyseal plate, okay? You can see here is our zone of resting cartilage, okay? So this phase or this location, it's essentially just a resting cell. Stage two, it proliferates. We're creating a lot more of them, okay? So we're going through a lot of cell division here. In our third zone, we actually begin to increase the size. In our fourth zone, we begin to add a little bit of calcification to it to start to harden and kill off the uh, cartilage cells. And then in zone five, this is the ossification zone. This is where now the bone actually becomes a part of that diaphysis, if you will, okay? Where now we begin to lengthen that bone and create uh, a longer bone, if you will, okay? So if we look at uh, bone growth then, uh, the length of the bone typically or specifically occurs within zone two and three, where we're actually going through the proliferation, uh, creating more cells and having the cells get bigger. In these two cells, as it does that, it actually pushes the zone of the resting cartilage toward the epiphysis a little bit more, okay? And so as we push that resting zone away, we're actually making that uh, division layers a little bit longer. And so the epiphyseal plate maintains a thickness during childhood, and then obviously at maturity, the rate of cartilage production slows, and as we get older then, that remnant is the internal thin line of compact bone called the epiphyseal line, which we've uh, already talked about several times there. This is a colorized x-ray of a child's hand. Uh, again, you can kind of see where some of these are. Specifically, two of the easiest ones to look at um, are here, the radius and the ulna. This is the radius and the ulna, okay, from here all the way back and from there all the way back. But you can see these little spaces that, you know, believe it or not, sometimes depending on the injury uh, and the age of the child, uh, if they're a little bit older, uh, where it looks like the epiphyseal plates should have or could have ossified, uh, sometimes this does still look a little bit like a fracture. And so sometimes it can actually get mistaken as a fracture, especially if you think it should have ossified already uh, and they have a fall or something that causes pain at that location, sometimes it can get mistaken for a fracture yet, okay? But again, you can kind of see where the epiphyseal plate is there, <laughs> epiphyseal plate is there, and you can see that all the way up in the phalanges too, epiphyseal plates, epiphyseal plates, epiphyseal plates, okay? All the way through. So if we start to look at uh, a little bit of a clinical view here, and we look at forensic uh, anthropology, this is basically looking at uh, bones and joints in particular, uh, the skeleton, if you will, uh, in a forensic point of view, okay? So in law enforcement specifically. And there's a lot of things that we look at when doing this. Some of the basic ones really are looking at that, those epiphyseal plates. Okay, so in a juvenile skeleton, 
uh, you're going to see the separate diaphysis and an epiphysis. Okay, so there's a little separation. Okay? In the adult skeleton, you basically are going to have whole or few bones. And again, this actually helps to determine the age of skeletal remains. Okay, if they're open, there's no union between the epiphysis and the other bone end. If we have partial union, we have some fusion between the epiphysis and the rest of the bone. And then if we have complete union, that's all visible aspects uh, are united to the rest of the bone. Okay? One hallmark between male and female or men and women is the epiphysial plates in women fuse about one to two years earlier than males. Okay? So females obviously stop growing a little bit earlier uh, than their male counterparts. Now we get to a positional bone growth. Okay, so interstitial was changing or uh, increasing the length of the bone. A positional bone growth increases the width of the bone. Okay, and this occurs within the periosteum. The bone matrix deposit is deposited within layers parallel to the surface, and osteoclasts begin to resorb bone matrix along our medullary cavity. And so, if we, whoops, sorry. So if we look at this in here. Here's our compact bone. Here's our medullary cavity. You can see where bone uh, the bone is deposited by the osteoblast. Okay, let's try to take a step up here. So right through here, you can see this little wedge. Bone is deposited through here. Here, the bone is resorbed through here. And so by doing that, you actually allow that bone to actually begin to grow out. Again, same thing here. Bone is deposited in this region, okay? And here, the bone is resorbed. So it continues to deposit and continues to resorb it, opening up that medullary cavity, but also continuing to make the uh, cylinder or the diaphysis making it, making the bone itself wider, okay? And so another clinical view is achondroplastic dwarfism. Okay? or what we call achondroplasia. Okay? And this is basically what we typically think of when we think of dwarfism. Okay? It's characterized by abnormal conversion of hyaline cartilage to bone, and the most common is achondroplastic dwarfism. The long bones of the limbs basically stop growing in childhood, whereas other bones actually continue to grow normally. Okay? So essentially what we have is an individual that's relatively short in stature, but typically will have a larger head in comparison uh, to their body size, okay? Here we have the failure of the chondrocytes in the epiphyseal plate to grow and enlarge. And because of that, we get inadequate endochondral ossification, okay? So it basically just gives you a very short individual. Uh, compared to the normal counterpart. Same questions on bone development. So all of that really took place up until and up through adolescence. Okay? Now there's one more phase of bone, and I say this loosely, development, because it's not really developing the bone, but it continues to change the bone, and that's bone remodeling. Okay, and bone remodeling continues to take place your entire life. Okay? And so it continues through adulthood, 
It occurs at the periosteal and endosteal surfaces of the bone, and it does this at different rates, okay? So if you think about it, the distal part of the femur is actually replaced about every four to six months, okay? The diaphysis of the femur is not completely replaced over an entire lifetime, right? So again, different remodeling rates, different types of cells, uh, or different cell types within those regions. If you think about the amount of cells from a bone perspective that actually get laid down and replaced, roughly 20% of your skeleton is replaced yearly. Interesting. 20% of your skeleton is replaced yearly. So essentially the theoretical perspective then is that roughly every five years, you know, five years ago you had a completely different skeleton than what you have right now. And then five years before that, so at this point, depending on how old you are, the majority of you have probably gone through one entire skeleton at this point, assuming you're close to, let's just say, this is not your guys' age, but we'll say you're 25 at this point, okay? Which means at that point, if you've completed your occupation, completed bone growth around 18 to 20, that means you're gone, and at 25, you have a new one, okay? Obviously, it's going to depend on the coordinated activities of a lot of different cells, including osteoblasts, osteocytes, and osteoclasts. Obviously, we have to have <clears throat> bone-forming cells. We also have to have bone-destroying cells. Uh, and so they're kind of working in tandem uh, from that perspective. And then it's also influenced by hormones that we have in our bodies uh, that are given off, as well as mechanical stress. Okay? So if we look at the mechanical stress perspective, mechanical stress is going to occur typically in our weight-bearing uh, bones that we utilize with uh, movement and exercise, okay? Mechanical stress is required for normal bone remodeling, okay? Because as you move, you put stress on certain areas and certain regions, and that allows our bodies to add more bone to make it stronger or develop it a little bit differently, in which case we may need to break some of it down, okay? And so we're constantly going through this remodeling process. Mechanical stresses are detected by osteocytes in the mature bone cells, and then they're communicated to the osteoblast, basically, in, or basically indicating that, hey, we have more stress here, we need more bone tissue, and so the osteoblasts begin to synthesize osteoids, okay? And this increases our bone mass, particularly in our weight-bearing activities. We also have decreased bone mass uh, if we remove uh, our mechanical stressors, okay? And so if you think about uh, exercise, exercise adds mechanical stress. So exercise gives us good, mature, solid bones. On the flip side, inactivity, okay? If you lay around on the couch 24-7, those bones actually become very, very weak, okay? And because, again, you're not using it kind of like the old adage, use it or lose it type thing. And that's the same thing here. If you don't use it, your body will take it from you, okay? And that leads us into Wolf's Law, okay? And Wolf's Law states that a bone grows or remodels in response to forces or demands placed upon it, okay? Uh, observations that indicate Wolf's Law. If you are right-handed or left-handed, okay, depending on what side, you'll typically find 
that the bones in that side are going to be slightly thicker and stronger, okay? Again, because you're constantly using it. Not only are you using it, but muscles are acting upon it, which means it's gonna add additional stress. Curved bones are gonna be the thickest where they're most likely to buckle. So if we take the curved bone and you grab the two ends and you try to pull them together and break it, where's it likely going to break? In a normal situation. In the middle. So we're actually going to have thicker bone tissue in the middle of those curved bones. We talked about trabeculae. They're going to form along lines of stress, again, adding more bone tissue. And then lastly, we have large bony projections that are going to occur where heavy active muscles attach. Uh, and I, have you, you guys have gone through bones already, you said? In lab? Some of you are in it, some of you have. So when you start looking at the bones themselves, you guys have to identify like markings on the bone, lines and ridges and all that stuff. If you look at those, those are the bony projections. And it's interesting because do you have to learn what attaches there or not? Or just the, what they are? Just what they are? If you go a little bit more detail, you'll find that a lot of those locations, whether it's a line, whether it's um, a, 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 a trochanter or whatever, a lot of these projections that extend out essentially are where muscles attach. And where those muscles and tendons go into the bone, as you begin to contract and pull, essentially that's basically telling the body, hey, we're putting a lot of stress on this area, we need to add a little bit more tissue there, okay? So again, that are, those are observations of Wolf's Law. <clears throat> so, one of the best examples I've ever had of this, actually two examples, but they're essentially the same thing. Uh, one of my patients uh, is a martial artist of God, probably 40 years, okay? And so one day, uh, I was, wasn't going to this place, but uh, he happened to be outside on the, the stoop because um, I was walking past. And he was taking a piece of wood, a round piece of wood, and rubbing it up and down his shins. Just like this. I'm like, what is he doing? What's that? No. No shin splints. He was just working it up and down. And my first instinct was, what in the heck is he doing? And then after like 20 seconds, I'm like, oh, duh. Well, I know what he's doing. And so as he came in the next time I was joking with him, I saw him and I said, man, that looked really goofy. And of course, he told me what he was doing, but I already knew. Why in the world would he be rubbing a piece of wood across his shins and his lower limbs. And it's not for a, a medical reason. So it wasn't for muscle. It wasn't for shin splints. It wasn't to loosen up the tissue. Why in the world would he be rubbing a piece of wood across his leg? And then 30 seconds later, after he rubbed it, you could see him like whacking his leg with it. How? Breaks it down, so it's more 
Um, not necessarily for that reason. I mean, you're right in your first answer. It makes the bones stronger. Why or how? It's stressing the bone. And so what is the body's response? Tells the bone to grow and make more. And so it makes it thicker. So, how many watched Karate Kid before? Good Lord, tell me all of you have. Okay, how about Karate Kid 2, where he goes to Okinawa? Okay, so in there, uh, Mr. Miyagi's best friend from when he was younger, they found this piece of beech wood. It's about six foot long. This guy, he's got a lot of money now in the movie. And so he basically took this piece of beech wood and basically propped it up, okay? And he uses it as part of his training, okay? So this is what he's doing over and over and over. He's in his stance, and he basically comes down on it. Obviously way harder than what I am. I'm just a big baby, and I don't want to hurt my hand, okay? But he's doing this over and over and over. Why? Why? For the exact same reason. So, have you ever heard of someone saying a martial artist's hands and legs are deadly weapons? And it's not just because of their technique. Their bones are strong. And when I mean strong, I mean strong. Especially if they are black belts and have been doing it for a long time. Yes. Like, they are, they're like, uh, short of actually calling them steel rods, they are like steel rods. Because they have so much bone density in them that they literally become killing machines, killing weapons. Which is why it hurts way worse when you get hit by one of those guys. Okay? So those are all perfect examples, which, by the way, I did ask him, of course, just so I could confirm. And he said, well, that's exactly why. So kind of get the idea once you understand what's going on. So that is Wolf's Law. Okay? Any questions on Wolf's Law? Um, so then we have hormones that actually start to affect bone growth. Okay? Uh, particularly bone growth and remodeling. Okay? And we'll kind of go through this slide relatively quick. Uh, the molecules get released from one cell or from one cell into the blood. Uh, they travel throughout the body to affect uh, cells. I'm not really sure what the heck happened to some of the packing here. We'll go back and change some of that. Uh, they're going to bind to cellular receptors of specific cells. Uh, they initiate specific cellular changes. Some of them are going to alter the rate of chondrocytes, osteoblast, and osteoblast activity. And they affect bone composition and growth patterns. Okay? And so we have a list of a few um, hormones here. We have growth hormone, or somatotropin, which is produced by the anterior pituitary gland. So somatotropin stimulates the liver to produce the hormone somatomedin. Okay? And both of these directly stimulate the growth of cartilage in the epiphyseal plate. Okay? This is often given to people or to children uh, when they are relatively undersized or their growth isn't catching up to what the norms are. A lot of times they will be given a growth hormone. And again, it does this by stimulating uh, cartilage growth in the epiphyseal plate. 
and by stimulating cartilage growth in the epiphyseal plate, what does that do to the bones? Makes it grow, which makes them taller, okay? So we're increasing bone length, okay? That's interstitial growth. We also have thyroid hormone, which is secreted by the thyroid gland. It's going to influence the basometabolic rate of bone cells and is regulated uh, with normal activity at the epiphyseal plates, okay? Or regulates normal activity at the epiphyseal plates. Other hormones that are uh, heavily involved in both gro bone growth and remodeling are estrogen and testosterone, okay? Once we hit puberty and these hormones start to increase, what's the purpose of estrogen and testosterone from a bone growth and remodeling perspective? Take a toddler, uh, seven, eight years old even, and obviously you can distinguish between male and female, right, at that point. Shave their head, make them look all the same. And now it's a little more difficult, right? <coughs> Take a 20-year-old male, female, shave their head. Can you still at that point then tell male or female? Yes, why? Let's just go from neck up then. What happens with facial structure? So how do we do that then? There you go. Hormones start to change a lot of your bone structure, okay? And so they're secreted in large amounts of puberty. Estrogen starts to change the structure of the female skeleton. Testosterone obviously starts to change the structure of the male skeleton. Obviously, hormones are going to uh, be different from individual to individual, but again, it starts to change the structure, particularly of the face, for one, and that gives us a particular look from foreheads to chins to uh, cheeks. Uh, essentially, it increases the rate of cartilage growth and bone formation in the epiphyseal plate, uh, causes us to grow a little bit more, which is why males typically are taller. Uh, and bone formation rate is greater than cartilage growth. And eventually cartilage is replaced with bone and growth stops. And we kind of know that as well. This will be a great place <clears throat> for us to stop. <clears throat> we will pick up with regulating blood calcium levels next Tuesday. Again, uh, exam is Thursday. I will not be here. You will have a different individual for the proctor. Uh, it will be Dr. Well, tentatively right now, it is Dr. Busick. You can ask questions to her, uh, as she will be able to answer likely whatever you need. Um, again, make sure that you have two piles, two separate piles, one for A, one for B. Green is A, uh, blue is B. Any questions about the exam or anything else? You are still more than welcome to email me. Um, I'll still be around up until Wednesday evening. Um, but honestly, you want to email me over the weekend, I'll still respond. As long as I got cell phone signal where I'm at. Otherwise, have a great weekend. Make sure you sign the sign-in sheet.